I Have to Ask is a proud partner with the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess. Today's guest is also part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network, host of the 200-level podcast, Mike Carpenter. Good afternoon, Mike. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. This is the first time we've ever met. We were both Urbana natives, and we both worked in radio for a long time. What was your first job in radio? First job in radio. So I was 16 years old. I'm 32 now. And my sister had this internship over the summer, and she comes home one day and says, you know, there's someone I'm working with and they're at 107.1, but everyone, as as we know, goes home for the summer back to Chicago with the U of I. So there was nobody working there and they needed someone that just knew some sports. And I said, well, I listened to 670 AM up in Chicago. Why not? So I went in and started at 107.1 when I was 16 and I worked there my junior and senior year of high school when I was going to Urbana High. And that continued through my junior year of college. Uh, senior year just kind of focused on getting the degree and being done with it. And that was when it began. And we did the Illini Drive at Five, which I think is still on in some iteration. I'm not sure what day of the week it is, but uh, they still do sports over there. And we just did a one, once a week, five to six, Illini Drive at Five. And uh, that was the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, Tay and Carp was, I think, a long time coming. The way I kind of view it is similar to how I view music, where you, everyone's kind of a sponge and you take in all these influences. And at first, you're sort of derivative of your influences. You're trying to almost mimic them. And then eventually, you start finding your own voice. And clearly, it's influenced by others, but you have an identity. You have a voice. So Lon and I had worked together dating back to the Tay and Jay show in 2010. And I'd be there two days a week. And then that would grow to maybe three times, maybe even four times a week, depending on Lon and Jeremy's availability. But we had a great rapport. And we decided when the split was made and Jeremy would do his morning show, we'd do the afternoon show, that our thing was going to be a kind of community, cast of characters, multiple guys on the mic, myself, Lon, Trevor Valise, who's a senior at the U of I, and the kid is wise beyond his years and just great on the air. Harry Black, who's one of the funniest people I ever met, former Illini football player. Even our interns like Hans D. We made him a character because they naturally are. And for me, whether it be old episodes of Stern, um, even more uh, Opie and Anthony, they had a bit of a run there. What I always appreciate about those talk radio shows is that it was just a hangout. It was a conversation, and that's what we wanted to do, and I think, unfortunately, in a limited time that we had together, we did do that, and for me, the aftermath of that and the amount of feedback, and whether it be Twitter, text, anything like that, has been overwhelming, because it did register, and people did enjoy it. Juan is just one of the easiest people to work with. We, we just had fun every day, and we never had to put on as if we were having a good time. We were always having a good time. Let's see. In Howard Stern, when I was growing up, he had the E! television show, and my parents would watch it sometimes, and I'd peek in, but I always was a little bit leery to watch it with them, because I didn't want one of those things to pop up where they say, okay, you need to leave the room now, or oh, you need to turn around, which occasionally rated our movies or something like that. That's what they would ask me to do. I hated those moments. But Stern, to an extent, uh, then it was 670, The Score in Chicago, and I don't know if any of those personalities that I listened to early on were necessarily great 
radio people, but they were great voices. So Mike North was this very charismatic guy, and I don't know how much substance there is there, but he had style. North and Jiggits. Yeah, yeah, those guys. And then it was Murph and Fred in the morning, and uh, they were okay. But for me, probably Boris and Bernstein. And I actually called into that show when it was mid-mornings after Illinois lost to Kansas in 2002, Frank Williams' last game, kind of the last game for that group of guys under Bill Self. And I was disagreeing with something they said about Frank Williams. And they, they treated me with kid gloves because they could tell I was a kid. I'm sure my voice was high enough for that. But I always appreciated that they were just brutally honest and even confrontational sometimes. And while I'm not naturally confrontational and I don't like to be adversarial, locally I've found that there is a faction of people that if you dare speak ill of Illinois sports that you are, well, what kind of fan are you? And I got to a point, and, and thanks to Boris and Bernstein, you realize that you don't need to play nice all the time, that you can just say, well, no, they suck, and I'm going to call it what it is. And uh, I, I think that sort of liberated me to think about radio as um, not just entertainment, but that you can be passionate about what you're talking about and be honest. And I thought, wow, what a great collection of things that you could be when you flip on a microphone. Let's go back to your last, your most recent job in radio. You used to work for Stevie J Broadcasting, but now you don't. So walk us through what happened there. Well, as we both understand about local media, and I think really you could go to any market and this would be a similar issue. There are a lot of realities of the business. Some of it may be financial. Some of it may be programming that it's just a transient profession. So if you're any place for 10 years, which is how long I was there, I, I consider part of that lucky. You know, that's a decade and that's, you know, a third of my life that I was working at that place. And the people that I worked with, especially in the sports side of it, you know, relationships I built that are just invaluable. If there's frustration that lingers from that, it's that, as I mentioned earlier, it felt like we were doing something very unique on Tancarp. And I hope down the road something like that can happen. And it's a double-edged sword to a degree where the guys that I know that are still there, I'm, I wish them nothing but the best. And if I see them, it's always very warm. And Alon has been on the 200 level. He'll be on it again. Derek's a tremendous individual who is just one of the better beat reporters that Illinois fans have had. But when it comes to why it ended, I, I, I still can't sit here and say 100% for sure. I don't know how much of it is personality-based, back to the idea of being honest. I think that outside voices influence people in different ways. Outside voices are not going to influence what I say. I don't care what the DIA thinks. I've already been unfollowed by some of the people over there on Twitter, and I think, well, that's fine, but I've never been personal towards you, and yet somehow that kind of filters into the conversation. As I said, this is all speculative, but yeah, outside voices influence people different ways. They don't influence me. They might have influenced the people that it needed to for that decision to be made. And uh, I do regret that it ended as it did. And there's probably a pride thing, too. In radio, you work to get to that morning or afternoon drive. You get your name on a show. There's not one hour or one second of that show I took for granted, and we put a lot of effort into making that unique and making it special. So you get that taken away from you, there's a pride element, but then as time has went on, I appreciate when I was there and also realized that I wouldn't be doing what I am now without it, namely the 200 level where I am 100% liberated. Never was I told, say this or don't say this, at least you know directly. But uh, maybe implicitly there was, well, I need to tiptoe. Nah, there's none of that now. So th there is a liberation. Let's talk about the 200 level in a second. But first, let's talk about how you shifted gears 
from radio to middle school teacher. When did you decide that you wanted to teach? This would have been in 2015, and sales was a big part of radio. And it was a means to an end. And in a market this size, often, more often than not, you would have to do that if it's going to be a full-time gig and you want to be a 40-hour week, all the benefits, you got to sell along with the on-air part of it. So it started off as, Ugh, I got to do it. I got okay at it. But then I had this sort of awakening where it was like, well, wait a second. I can't do this for another five years even, I, let alone 10 or 20. I cannot sell. Not that I couldn't but I didn't want to. I didn't have a passion for it like some people do. So then I thought, well, you know, practically speaking, what is something that I would enjoy doing? What is something that would allow me to, you know, be creative on a day-to-day basis? And teaching is one of those things where every day the front of the classroom is kind of like a stage. And as you're constructing, how am I going to get through these 46 minutes? It is like writing a set list or planning a show. And that outlet allows me to stay on my toes. There's never a boring moment there. And then there's the relationship component where uh, I have two nieces and a young nephew, uh, six, four, and two. And realizing that as a resident of Champagne, and presumably not going anywhere, this is my home, that you could make a tangible difference. And that sounds a little trite, but there is something to that where there is a rewarding component to teaching that is not going to be in any sales gig. Uh, not to belittle sales gigs, but you know, th- there's something that each and every day I walk out of Jefferson, there is a fulfillment that I didn't have before. Let's talk about the 200 level. You're obviously a lifelong Illini fan. Your podcast goes into incredible detail about the teams, the coaching decisions, and the fans, everything. When did you realize you should do this show, which might I say is a niche that wasn't filled in this town? Oh, well, thank you. I mean, that, that was the hope. And the 200 level started as a radio show on 93.5 in 2016. And it was myself and Steve Breitweiser, who is one of the funniest, sharpest people I've ever worked with. And he required me to raise my game. Like you cannot do a show with Steve Breitweiser and not be a hundred percent into it because he will say things that if you miss it, good luck trying to catch back up with it. And we started that in the aftermath of college game day live. We tried a Saturday morning home games only show where we'd go out to the lots before they told us we couldn't be in the lots. And then we go to the hula hands outside and we did that. And then we just realized that every November we'd be outside freezing cold and Illinois was two and six. And what's the point, you know? So the 200 level was a one hour show, but it was basically a podcast already. We would have opening segments that would go until 38 after the hour. We'd have a break in the middle, but apart from that, it was just an hour long podcast. When Tan Carp ended, you know, there's a bit of shell shock, but fortunately there was a month period where I was still doing the show after I announced that it was ending and I could figure out what am I going to do next. The first idea was I need to stay fresh. I can't not broadcast in one shape or form and I needed to, you know, keep that going. And the other good thing is I've been in bands my entire life. So I had the equipment, I had a mixer, I had the sound card, I had the microphones, the mic stands, and it was ready to go. I had the acoustic tiling just stashed away in my basement that I had never really used. So that was the first thing, stay fresh. And then the second thing was I had a month to figure out what exactly I wanted to do with it. We already have a structure in place, opening segment, uh, two basically hour-long interviews. And I mean, this thing is like Joe Rogan's sized two-and-a-half, three-hour podcast Because for me, a podcast is something I consume over the course of a week, driving to and from work. And I wanted it to be timely, but not overly so, where you could listen to it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all leading up to the next game. So, uh, so far, just really pleased with how 
seamless it has been to get into it. And I mentioned the liberation part of it earlier. I mean, it's not like we're going on there and we're just, you know, cussing left and right and embracing all the freedoms you get with the podcast. We're still very much rooted in radio traditions, but I love an organic conversation and that's what we've had. And it seems like each week we're getting more and more fluid with it. I'm old enough to remember the 89 Fighting Illini basketball team. And of course, 2005 was fun. How frustrating is it to be part of a major conference, but just kind of suck. It's frustrating because the 05 year, I was a senior in high school and it was like the best year of your life. You know, that to me was just the most beautiful mix of like, you know, you're still young and innocent and you're starting to have fun and you get accepted to college. So you have less to worry about. Oh, and the college you're going to has the number one basketball team in the nation. And at that point, there was the sense that, well, we've made it, we've arrived and we aren't going anywhere. Like this is going to be permanent. And it is very frustrating to 10 years since I've really been consistently in radio from 93.5 to this point, that if you were to ask me, well, what's your favorite season or what's your favorite moment, I would really have to rack my brain. I enjoy playing Remember When to a degree, but if you play Remember When too often and you have nothing recent to talk about, it's just kind of depressing. And that's unfortunately a little bit where we're at, where we have to call it as we see it, which is right now you have combined the worst power five football basketball combo outside of maybe a Rutgers because Kansas has basketball, even though football stinks. I'm trying to think of other examples of that. Penn State's basketball program, not that great, but football is. I would love to see what it'd be like to do a podcast if this had been 0405, because for as many people that are into the sports talk radio format, just like, uh, you know, restaurants and bars on campus, your business is better when they're doing well. And already you're two and two, and you're thinking, well, are we just biding time until Lovey's gone? What's the story? What's the narrative? Other than, well, we stink again, and then what? Short of getting Nick Saban or Urban Meyer to come here, (laughs) what needs to happen to make football better? I can't begrudge Whitman for making the hire of Lovey Smith, and I was as pumped as anybody was. I thought, This makes sense. This is the sort of experiment that could work for someone that geographically has a lot of cachet. I mean, Bears fans, kids that would have been recruits that would have been five or six when the Bears made their Super Bowl run. And Lovey just carries some weight with him. He came into the studio the day that he was hired and it was like, holy crap, that's Lovey Smith, NFL head coach, now the Illini football head coach. You need someone that's a hard worker. And that right there might have sounded like a dig at Lovey. I think if you're a person like Lovey Smith, inherently you are going to think that I can sell myself. My brand will sell itself. And I don't need to work as hard as a PJ Fleck or some other character like that. And while I wouldn't necessarily want a PJ Fleck as our head coach either, you need someone that's willing to scrap. You need a bulldog because as Illinois, the best you're ever going to get, I think, is that little terrier that nips at somebody's ankles. You're going to be the annoying little brother in the conference. You're never going to be Ohio State. So you need a personality that matches that. Zook, might have been the closest thing to that, but unfortunately, as good of a recruiter as he was, couldn't coach. Ron Turner, I think, had a bit of the Lovey Smith conundrum where he thought, especially after they won, it would sell itself. He didn't like recruiting, and that unfortunately ended that experiment early too. You'd have to go back to Makovic, and I was too, I'm too young to remember any of that, and it can be done. I think it's nonsense when people say that this is kind of what you are, you just need to accept it. You're a Wisconsin person. Before Barry Alvarez, that football program stunk. It takes one guy. I don't know who that is. I don't know what the template is. But 
unfortunately, it's becoming increasingly clear that Lovey is not it. So then the question is not so much that, well, why did Josh hire him? Everyone gets why he hired him. The question is, what does Josh Whitman do now? And I think the decision is becoming more and more clear each week. Some people can't let the chief go. This is a loaded question. (laughs) You're a fan, but you also get that it can be perceived as an offensive symbol. How do you reconcile that? So if you came into my house, you would still see certain, you know, memorabilia, posters, coasters, you know, of all things with the chief emblem. And it's weird because I've even had this discussion last week with some friends about how, you know, man, if if we could have just made the compromise where we kept the logo, and I know that's still Native American imagery, but I look at the Blackhawks logo and think visually to me, it's striking. And that is just completely removing myself from the obvious cultural appropriation going on there. I grew up loving the chief. I was devastated when they retired the chief. But the reason I was devastated was not because I knew Chief Alonawek, because for one, it's not a real person. Uh, It was maybe this sort of mix of I grew up with it. It was a tradition and that tradition was being taken away. So naturally I had an emotional response to it. But it didn't take long for me to realize that this is not something that I was going to expend energy on fighting or keeping the spirit of Chief Alonawek alive. I think what is unfortunate about the conversation is that a lot of the chief supporters I know, or people that supported the chief, I should say, even if they aren't ardent supporters now, I do think intent matters and that there was not necessarily a malicious intent behind supporting the chief. So that's number one. But for me in 2019, 12 years removed from it, I simply don't have the energy to go outside uh, for a pro-chief protest and say, I need the chief back, otherwise uh, I'm not going to donate or I'm not going to go to games. At the end of the day, not to belittle a tradition that was important to people, but at the end of the day, it's a guy dressing up as a Native American and doing a dance. No, it's not as offensive as to me as the Redskins name or Chief Wahoo. But if, if, if offends a certain amount of people, it's just not a fight that I think is worth having. I've, I've gotten over it. So what I would implore people to do that are chief supporters, I'm not going to go up to someone wearing a Chief Alinewick t-shirt and say, you monster. But I would say, you don't actually lose sleep over this, right? Because it's not worth losing sleep over. And if people want to continue that tradition in, in their minds and they stand up during the three and one, hey, they can do what they want by all means. But he's not coming back. Let's just accept that. And not turn it into this larger PC culture argument. There are fights worth having. There are discussions worth having about PC culture. I don't think Chief Alonawek is it. Let's talk about your other, other job as a musician. Who are some of your biggest influences and what type of music do you like to play? Led Zeppelin, number one, with a bullet. Best rock band ever. Jimmy Page actually last week was quoted in this article about it, and he said it himself, and I said, he's right. I mean, there's, and I love the Beatles. I saw Paul McCartney this summer. That was as emotional as I've been at any concert because I saw a Beatle playing Beatles songs. The Beatle, if you really want to think about it that way. So growing up, it was classic rock. My dad introduced me to Led Zeppelin III. An immigrant song scared the crap out of me. Three years old, and that riff is just demonic, and that wail is still, you know, chill-inducing, Right. And we cover that uh, in decadence, and we just try to do a faithful, you know, no, no frills, two minutes, and that's all you need for it. And then got kind of expanded in the Stones and the Beatles. U2 was another early influence, and I understand that Bono can be a bit much for people, and he can be a bit much for me sometimes, but they are a fantastic live band, and at their peak are one of the best rock bands ever. So the Joshua Tree 
and Led Zeppelin III. Those were the two albums that got me into it. Piano, started that when I was four. And then when I turned a corner was when my piano teacher said, do one, for a recital, you did two songs. She said, do one out of the book, and then you get to pick any rock song you want to cover. So I did Freebird one year. I did Stairway to Heaven one year. did Hey Jude another. And then the last year, I did this medley I came up with, no sheet music of With or Without You and Toward the Streets Have No Name on Piano. That switched me from someone who read music to someone who played it by ear. And that is actually more advantageous if you want to be in a band, a rock band, sorry. Drums started that when I was 12, guitar when I was 21, been in band since I was 16. So it all started with Zeppelin, to be honest, because if you said, why do you want to play guitar, Jimmy Page? Why do you want to play the drums, John Bonham? And uh, I modeled at least the drums off John Bonham. I cannot get anywhere close to what Jimmy Page could ever do on a guitar. But the, the sort of idea that a riff could be a mantra, a, re- a riff repeated over and over, whole lot of love, three notes, that's it. But it's the rhythm and it's the sort of hypnotic quality that it has. So anything that we've written in our original band, most of it is riff based. Single note and maybe the verses are just kind of holding on a chord, but it all comes back to the riff. And that the music always comes first. The lyrics to me are secondary. As long as you have a good riff, then you can build uh, words and melodies around it. Next time we'll argue about the fact that the White Album was still fantastic, even though Ringo walked off the job. That's true, he did. And I mean, I know Paul's on Dear Prudence for sure. And that, the drum fills and the outro in that song are just, and they're Ringo-esque. So it's like they played the same kind of fills. Uh, I'm an Abbey Road guy. Abbey Road is my favorite. When as soon as you get to the crescendo, she came in through the bathroom window, I will sit in the car until it's over. How many times have I heard it? I don't even know. Golden Slumbers. So this was the encore for Paul McCartney. He comes out. And uh, I know Helter Skelter was in there for sure. Then he did the Golden Slumbers, the end, or Carry That Weight, the end. He did that trio to end it. And when Golden Slumber starts, I told my wife that, you know, when that starts, I'm going to freaking lose it, you know, and I did. And what's beautiful about it is they went into it knowing this is it. Like, this is the last thing we're going to do together. For me, I don't know about you, but the moment, I had not seen Paul before. And the moment the house lights go off, you know, and he just walks on stage. I got why in 1964, people were fainting and crying at the side. Like, I just welled up when he walked on stage and gave a wave. That was it. I welled up and maybe midway through Hard Day's Night, I was like, oh, okay, now I'm good. But I've never had an experience like that at a concert. I'm going to let you go in a minute, but I have to ask, do you want Lovey Smith to lose his job? (laughs) I don't want him, well, this is maybe semantics. I don't want him to keep his job. So it's like, I don't, it's not angry, Lovey, get the hell out of here. I'm taking this away from you. It's more, this isn't working. I think he knows it deep inside. Like, I mean, how could you not when you look outside or look at the stat line and see that, you know, your defense, your defensive guru gave up officially 674 yards. We called this week's episode the 700 Club because essentially anytime you get near that number and yards given up, it's just, you know, call it a day. It's terrible. No, it's not working. He should not be the coach anymore. The recruiting has fallen off. There's no momentum. And the only way Josh Whitman, I think, would keep him is under this idea of, well, stability matters. But if it's bad stability, then it doesn't matter and actually is all the more reason to make that move. I don't want a coaching search any more than anybody else, but I do want them to have a shot to make a bowl game next year with a roster that will be experienced and I think has uh, some difference makers on it. So, no, uh, Lovey, I, I don't want him to continue as the Illinois head football coach. I think the way that the season will play out, that decision will be made for him. Last question before I let you go. We're both part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Mm-hmm. Why'd you join? 
because I appreciate the fact that I was mentioning earlier just about like local media landscape might be a big word for it, but let's call it local media landscape and thinking about what is out there. And we have three radio groups in town. We have one newspaper and there are good people doing good work. There are, but there are not enough alternative outlets. So whether or not everything that Champagne Showers tweets out or opines about, I 100% agree with is completely irrelevant to me. They're doing something different. We're doing something different. You're doing something different. And I love the sort of news aggregate that it's become with a little bit of commentary thrown in. And it's really just trying to establish alternative ways that people can consume media. If there's a frustration I have in this community, it's that having grown up from a young age, there are ways that things are done uh, with local media outlets that I'm thinking it is the most tired and boring thing. And we never came on the air at 93.5 and said, we just want to be different for the sake of being different. But sadly, we didn't have to try that hard to be different. There's so many uh, things that are entrenched in this community that it needs the occasional wake-up call. It needs the occasional changing of the narrative. Because otherwise, it can just be droll and boring, and I'm sick of it. I'm tired of boring media and I'm glad to be a part of something that says, you know what? Yeah, we're, we're going to occasionally tick you off. We're occasionally going to ruffle some feathers, but too bad. I, I appreciate that angle of it, too. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Mike Carpenter, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Anytime.